The Wrap-Up Smear. Yeah, that's what it's called. Hi, everybody. Brian Sussman here. It's The Brian Sussman Show. This is episode 162. We're continuing our series called Skyjacked, Weaponizing the Climate. But we've got to talk about the wrap-up smear. This is what the Democrats have attempted to do to Donald Trump. It's a term that is well-known in Washington, D.C. It may have, I know Nancy Pelosi has talked about it, but she actually may have, I don't think she really invented it, but she might have come up with that term, the wrap-up smear. What you do is you, you wrap somebody up in an accusation. And then you just smear them, smear them, smear them, smear them, smear them with it. And that way, with most people, you got them right where you want them. Uh, The only way they can respond is to say something in their defense. And generally speaking, when you say something in your defense and you're being recorded by the media, they make you out to be an idiot. And this is what they're attempting to do with Trump. Indictment, perp walk criminal where does this come from this is this is an age-old tactic used in politics probably forever but it has been particularly effective with socialists and communists and so where am i going in this podcast as we talk about skyjacked weaponizing the climate i'm talking about communists I'm talking about the father of communism, Karl Marx. And I'm talking about Karl Marx being the first and his disciples being the first people to realize, you know, we can really put forward our communist agenda by utilizing the environment. And that's what they're doing. In fact, they took it to another level and we'll talk about this in upcoming uh, episodes. But first it was the environment but then it became something you can't even see. The air, the air, the weather. You can see the weather, but you can't see the air. There's pollutants in the air. Okay, let's clean the pollutants out. We did one heck of a job of that in the United States of America. My gosh, I remember as a kid in Los Angeles, I remember my lungs being on fire sometimes when I was a little kid playing. Some of you lived in New York City when you were kids in the, uh, the 50s, 60s. You know how bad it was. And uh, President Nixon came in and he did a great job. You know, complain all you want about Tricky Dick, but I'm telling you something. This guy put together a program that involved creating the EPA, probably is a, a big mistake. But nonetheless, the EPA in the beginning, they just wanted to clean up the pollution in the sky across the United States of America. We did a darn good job. So good, in fact, that they had to come up with a different pollutant. It's called carbon dioxide, which is not a pollutant at all. Did you hear me? It's not a pollutant at all. It's essential for life. These people are so clever, so diabolically clever. But allow me to continue, please. Uh, And that is three additional founders of the Green Agenda. So we've got Karl Marx. And Von Liebig, who I talked about in the last episode. But we got three additional founders of the Green Agenda. You, you're probably unfamiliar with these names unless you read my book, Climategate. But that was quite a few years ago. So let's continue. The first guy's name, Sir Edwin Ray Lancaster. He was, uh, he was knighted 
in in England by the by the king or queen at that time. King, queen, queen, I guess. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> sorry for sorry for not being up on my monarchy. Uh, Sir Edwin Ray Lancaster, zoologist, University College London, and noted as the greatest Darwinist of his generation, an atheist as well, of course. In fact, it's well established that Lancaster's family close friends with Charles Darwin, and it has been written of little Ray, this is Charles Darwin talking about Ray, being carried on the shoulders of Darwin as a child. Little Ray being carried on the shoulders of Darwin as a child. The Lancaster was about 30 years younger than Marx. They were both close friends. They were colleagues and fellow materialists. Now, what, remember what materialist is. These are people that only believe that the, on, the only thing that exists is matter. That's all that exists. So your imagination, eh, your, your beliefs, eh, your, especially your belief in God, eh, all we can say exists for certain are atoms and molecules. If we can't see them, they don't exist and they're not worth protecting. And that's why Marx believed your, your feelings, your emotions weren't worth protecting. Your beliefs weren't worth protecting. The property between your ears was not worth protecting. Everything else should be protected by the state and owned by the state. That's what Marx believed. That's what Lancaster believed as well. Lancaster, frequent guest at Mark's household in the last few years of Mark's life, attended his funeral. Why am I mentioning this? Because I just want to let you know what, what Lancaster said, Marx may as well have been saying. In fact, Lancaster once wrote Marx saying, I'm reading your great work on capital with the greatest pleasure and profit. Of course, Marx hated capitalism. Lancaster was the most eco-socialist thinker of his time. He wrote powerful papers on species extinction due to human causes with an urgency that, by the way, would not be found again until late in the 20th century. His most popular screed was called Nature and Man, Nature and Man. And he described humans as the insurgent son of nature. He said, we may need, we may indeed compare civilized man to a successful rebel against nature who by every step forward renders himself liable to greater and greater greater and greater penalties he has willingly abrogated in many important respects the laws of his mother nature by which the kingdom was hitherto governed he has gained some power and advantage by doing so but is threatened on every hand by dangers and disasters hitherto restrained. No retreat is possible. His only hope is to control the sources of these dangers and disasters. So he, he saw man as just, just, just reckless. And the only way we could keep ourselves from our reckless behavior was to uh, take reckless caution to cover up our mistakes. So that's Lancaster. He did not like humans. Not a big fan of capitalism at all. Hated religion. Lancaster's star pupil was a guy named Arthur Tainsley. So Tainsley coined the term ecosystem. Tainsley was never able to interface with Marx directly, but it, he was a fellow Darwinist, a materialist, a socialist, and uh, a botanist. Tainsley was deeply concerned with the destructive human activities of the modern world. Are you seeing a pattern here, friends? 
Marx believed this. His disciple Lancaster believed this. Tainsley believed this. Humans were wrecking the world. He argued ecology must be applied to conditions brought about by human activity. That was the start of the environmental movement right there. Ecology must be applied to conditions brought about by human activity. Friends, we need an environmental movement to shut down capitalism, to shut down progress, to shut it down. Now, in the 1940s, Tainsley had a young protege named Charles Elton. Elton worked further to develop this ecosystem concept. He was a fiery writer. And he set the stage for the coming generation of all these eco-authors. Uh, well, more on that in just a second. Let me talk about what he wrote in 1958. It was a condemnation of the use of pesticides. He declared that this astonishing rain of death upon so much of the world's surface was largely unnecessary and threatened the very delicately organized inner locking systems of populations in the ecosystem. He did not like modern agriculture. He did not like the use of pesticides, even the ones that were uh, harm, harmless to humans and harmless to the animal world, didn't like any of them. He especially didn't like the fact that uh, pesticides and fertilizers cause plants to grow better and healthier. Didn't like any of that because with more plants, you had healthier people. With healthier people, you had larger families. With larger families, you had more animals. With more animals, you had more manure. That's, that's how he saw the world. That's how a lot of these thinkers see to the world this day. That's why you get guys like Paul Ehrlich, Professor Emeritus, Stanford University, um, who's a, 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 he's a, a, like a prophet to the environmentalists, a saint, if you will. So the climate... Climate change ideology is very religious. It's very religious. I'll talk about that in an upcoming episode as well. But from Karl Marx to Charles Elton, there are just a mere three degrees of separation bringing us to the modern radical environmental movement of today. But there was another person I have to highlight before I can get into the modern movement. And that is the green giant, Vladimir Lenin. Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, you mentioned that name to any U.S. citizen who is from, formerly from the Soviet Union, and the response will be instantly visceral. Lenin was the Marx-honoring communist who overthrew Russia and birthed a movement of tyranny that eventually plunged Russia and Eastern Europe into several generations of doom and misery. I was in Eastern Europe recently. I spoke to a church in Bulgaria. I was visiting friends there, a friend of mine pastors, the church I spoke at. My friend took me on a great tour of Bulgaria. Gosh, Bulgarian people are incredible. Uh, they've maintained their language and their people group and their culture for uh, many hundreds of years. But they were ruled by the Ottoman Empire for four or five hundred years. They were taken over by the communists. Hitler moved in for a, a brief period of time. But they've always been able to maintain their identity. And it's just incredible because when you look around, they're, they're still, it's been 40 years since communism, they're still digging out. They're still digging out. Well, communism ended at what, 91. So they're still digging out. You look around and all of these apartment buildings, just they're just 
so ugly on the outside. Now, the people have done a nice job of fixing them up on the inside, but that's because the communists aren't around and they could do that now. Lenin was born in 1870. It was a family steeped in revolutionary thought. Uh, when he was 17, his older brother was actually executed for attempting to assassinate the czar. That's Lenin's family. Several years later, Lenin began to engross himself in the works of Marx. And by the early 1900s, he was a well-known Marxist author himself, writing books on materialism and socialist economic theory. In 1916, he penned an angry missive entitled Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. By this time, he gained a significant following, and by October the following year, he and a small band of cohorts staged a cunning coup, and now he was named chairman of the new government, and the Russian Revolution was well underway. Once in power, he said, the period of transition to communism will for the first time create democracy for the people. Friends, don't be fooled. When you hear these Democrats and even a few Republicans talking about democracy, democracy has always meant socialism. It's not what the founders of this country intended. They wanted a representative democracy, but pure democracy is mobocracy. It's, it, it's socialism. It's communism. It's awful. I'll talk more about that in an upcoming podcast as well. But immediately, members of the former regime in Russia were arrested. Many were executed. Banks were nationalized. Private businesses were taken over by the state. A Supreme Economic Council was formed to run the country. All private land, including any property belonging to the church, now belonged to the new Soviet state. A civil war ensued. Freedom lovers tried to withstand the new government and its Red Army, but they, they were brutally defeated. Between men killed in action and those executed by the Red Army, it's likely that over a million people died immediately. And Russia's economy was devastated. And the factories and the infrastructure was destroyed. And the livestock and raw materials were pillaged. And, and mines were flooded by the government because Lenin didn't want anybody to mine any longer. People were without hope. The country was a mess. And despite this mess, people starving to death. Despite this mess, one of his top priorities at the very start was to institute a green agenda. Now, he was a devout student of Marx, and he was familiar with von Liebig and the, the, the guano crisis. And he knew all the others as well, but... He believed that nature's resources should never be used for a profit like the others, only for the good of the people. And then only, only, only if absolutely necessary. In fact, the Supreme Soviet leader, Lenin, would be, the, would be known for being far kinder to nature than he was to the people he ruled. Seriously. Within his first year as party chairman, he spent all of this time writing this lengthy paper entitled on land. It declared that all forests, all waters, all minerals were property of the state. You own a farm, not yours any longer. You own a forest that we're using to make money to, uh, to cut down lumber for construction or whatever. Nope, not any longer. You own riverfront, streamfront property. That stream flows under your, into your property. That's your source of water, not yours. 
Later that same year, as people were starving to death and people were freezing to death in the winter, they started to clear portions of the forest for firewood and construction material. And he issued a stern decree called On Forests. And from that moment on, the forests were protected by military. Lenin's decree declared the, pro the protected areas as a preservation of monuments of nature. Uh, we have those same things here in the United States, thanks to the Bill Clinton administration. Monuments of nature. We even have, I think we even have landscape, um, landscape monuments. Landscape monuments? Yeah, landscape monuments. So I see this landscape. That's a monument, off limits. Animal rights came next with the decree on hunting. And uh, it also included the right to possess hunting weapons, as it was called, but the right to possess hunting weapons meant no one could possess a hunting weapon. Sound familiar? It banned the hunting of moose and wild goats and ended open seasons for a variety of other animals in spring and summer. People were starving. They wanted to eat. Lenin's counsel in crafting this green agenda came from uh, an agronomist in Russia who argued that we needed, they needed those nature preserves. No hunting, no harvesting, no clearing of dead growth. Kind of like what they do in our, our forests. This is why California has so many wildfires. They refuse to clear the dead growth. They won't do it. They will not do it. That's coming from the environmental organizations. And that's why when there's a forest fire in California, it goes nuts. These forests, in many cases, maybe most cases, haven't been cleared for decades. Ask anybody who has a home in California, a second home, vacation home, primary home, and they're in the mountains, in forest area. Ask them what their homeowner's insurance is every year. I have a friend. She's in a, uh, a mountain subdivision. I mean, there are houses next to hers and the, the lots are probably maybe a quarter acre each. So the houses are fairly close together, but you know, they're surrounded by forest. Her fire insurance last year was $5,000. It's because the insurance companies realize the forests are just ready to go. It's, it's amazing. I'm reading <laughs> this... This is an amazing thing because as Lenin continued, he didn't care about the people. He just cared about the land. Here's another 1921 article that he posted on the protection of nature, gardens, and parks. There was a People are starving to death. There's a commission established to oversee the implementation of all these new laws. He was, he was literally giving military protection to the land while the people were dying. And he also did this in the South Ural Mountains, which were rich in coal and iron ore and ferrous metals and gold, all off limits. Didn't want anybody getting that coal or the iron ore or the non-ferrous metals or the gold. I mean, there was an opportunity for the state to actually make money from this stuff in terms of helping the people stay warm and, and using the various metals for industry, but he didn't want to do any of that. 
when when you hear these environmentalists speak of the future they want to create, just think Lenin. Think disaster. And with that in mind, I'm going to stop her down for right now because in our next podcast episode, I'm going to talk about the very, the modern, the modern environmental movement. And we will do that uh, with gusto. So I really appreciate you being with me. Tomorrow, by the way, is Passover. So I'm going to be pre-taping that episode because I don't do any work on the Passover. And in fact, I think in the next episode, I'm going to talk about the Passover. And I'm going to talk about Good Friday. And I'm going to talk about Easter Sunday. Go figure. I can and I will. (laughs) Because I can and I will. In the meantime, God bless you, my friends. I really appreciate you. Brian Sussman. Dot com is the website, Brian Sussman Show on Facebook. And for daily doses of inspiration, just go to Instagram at Brian Sussman Show. We are flat out of time. I like to keep these down to about 20 minutes. So God bless you, my friends. And until next time. <laughs> <laughs>